everybody, it's Ryan Polly, and you're listening to Coffee House Questions. You know, one thing, uh, when I have my students in class, uh, they love to ask a lot of questions. They always ask questions like, who created God, and, and how can God be good if there's evil? And there's lots of these questions that they've learned, and I think heard from uh, the new atheists, that come up a whole lot when I'm with students. And so um, I have the privilege today of having a guest join me. Uh, my guest today is Andy Bannister. Uh, Andy Bannister is the director of Solus um, Center for Public Christianity, and we'll talk a little about, uh, more about that here in a little bit. It's an evangelism ministry, but Andy wrote a book called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Dreadful Consequence of Bad Arguments. And so he's joining me today, and we are going to talk through a few bad arguments uh, from the new atheists and how do we go about talking to people and doing evangelism. So a Andy, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Hey Ryan, it's a it's a privilege and a pleasure. Really, uh, really pleased to be with you today. Awesome. And so, um, you are, I think, my furthest guest uh, joining me on this podcast. I've interviewed people in California and Atlanta, but you are joining me over Skype all the way from Scotland. Is that correct? All the way from body Scotland. Now, remind me where you are. Uh, I'm in La Mirada, California. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. whole eight hours away. Time zones. Yeah, and it was great. You know, I, I, when we kind of were setting up this interview, and noticed that you were, uh, had went from you were in Canada, so you were the Canadian director for Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, and how, how long were you the director for RZIM? So I was there for um, just over six years, about six and a half years, something like that. Okay. And then uh, this, uh, this summer, we moved back to the UK and uh, and then up to Scotland to uh, to take on the directorship of, of Solas that you mentioned, but I'm still remaining actually with RZIM as well. So I do about. About a third of my time uh, with them right now, and a lot in North America. I was actually in California just two weekends ago, funnily enough, up in Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, I love uh, I love your side of the Atlantic. Yeah, and, and that was a great opportunity because I think when we were kind of setting up this interview, uh, just realizing you were quite a ways away, and uh, I hadn't been, had the chance to meet you yet, um, but then saw you were coming to Los Angeles and was able to go to that conference and, and meet you. And so it was great to kind of see you in person and talk to you a little bit there. That's right. That's uh, always good fun because sometimes you're right. We set these things up and can never meet. So uh, anyway, good yeah. to, good with you tonight or this afternoon from your point of view. Yeah, yeah. One o'clock here in <laughs> California and you're getting ready to go to bed. Well, um, I wanted to kind of jump in and, and talk about your book. And that's the reason why we're kind of doing this and how it kind of relates to having conversations and, and getting out there and doing um, evangelism. And so kind of my first question is, is that Solas, the way I understand it, is a ministry that's dedicated to training and kind of encouraging Christians to go out and communicate, to do evangelism. Uh, but you also are very heavy in apologetics and writing books on new atheism. Uh, and, and so how do you see apologetics and evangelism kind of going hand in hand or do they contradict? You know, that's what some people yeah. kind of say. That's a fantastic question. I think um, I think I'll be very clear, actually, Ryan. I think for me, apologetics and evangelism kind of go perfectly um, together, really. In fact, I think actually it's evangelism that keeps apologetics real. I think if you unplug apologetics from evangelism, it can very quickly become very cerebral. So suddenly you become fascinated by arguments and you know intellectual stuff. And you know I meet people who who, who say they love apologetics, and you very quickly after you know sort of five minutes, the conversation sometimes becomes you know sort of rather rather surreal really i find myself sitting and thinking oh give me a good non-christian because i think um i think the thing about keeping it pegged to evangelism is it keeps it grounded and focused on the gospel as well and for me any apologetic that doesn't ultimately begin or end at the cross there's something wrong with it yeah and so i think yeah i think it belongs with evangelism one of the things actually 
we used to say at RZAM, I think Ravi sort of coined this metaphor, and I've actually sort of stolen it for Solas with the team. Is if you know, if you think of if you think of uh, if you think of RZAM or in our case, think of Solas as an aeroplane, the kind of pointy end of the aeroplane is evangelism, and the wings that bear that up are, I think, uh, are apologetics and compassion. So mm. you know, treating people with dignity and respect, but also answering their, their questions. But the whole thrust of what we're doing is evangelism. So I think uh, yeah. I think apologetics belongs with evangelism. You could make an argument it belongs with discipleship as well, helping encourage Christians, but I think apologetics for apologetics' sake is is a waste of time. You'll probably get angry emails and, and you know letters coming in now saying, what did that British guy say? But <laughs> you know, I would take a stand on that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, kind of what it sounds like you're saying is that, you know, just doing apologetics, we can sit down and answer questions. But if we're just answering questions and not leading them to the cross, we're not pointing them to Jesus, yeah. it doesn't really, those questions don't matter. I think so. And I think also the other one is sometimes I meet Christians who become obsessed with apologetics in its own right. And... They read books on it, they study it, they go to conferences, but they never actually sit down and talk to an old Christian. It just becomes mm. this sort of thing that they're into. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in one sense, that's, I guess, you know, for me, as you know, in another, use a metaphor, as, as like an outward, sort of an outward bound enthusiast, that's like somebody spending all of their life reading books on mountains and, and watching videos of mountain climbing and becoming real experts in, you know, how to tie a rope and climb a rock face, but they never actually, not once ever put on their you know their climbing shoes and go climb something yeah and so i think apologetics has to be and one of the reasons it keeps you sharp you know when i was when i was learning my apologetics back in the 1990s it made a huge difference that every weekend i was out there on the streets of london talking to muslims you know it shaped the questions and i yeah. think if you don't shape your thinking talking to non-christians you can very easily end up with some very strange ideas yeah um so yeah, I think it belongs with evangelism. And and was it those questions that you had talking on the streets with Muslims that led you to? I saw that you have your PhD in Islamic studies. How did you choose Islamic studies for a PhD? I accidentally ticked the wrong box on the university application. <laughs> I meant to do archaeology. Um, no, it was actually. I mean, joking, you know, bad jokes aside, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, to go late 1990s, I ended up going to a place in London, England, called Speakers Corner. It's part of our, one of our big parks in London, and it's sort of famous the world over is sort of center of free speech and at Hyde Park in London you can stand on a ladder or a soapbox to talk about anything and there were lots of Muslims there one of my friends was going along to, to evangelize the Muslims who, who, who would be there found, be found there every weekend and he persuaded me to go I think he said oh, you know it's not hard talking to Muslims um, he was completely wrong it was actually very difficult and they had all kinds of questions and objections many of which I never even thought about so it forced me to begin studying and through that reading to answer the questions of my friends, I discovered I had an academic kind of streak. I hadn't been to university at this point. I was 28. No one in my family had been to university. But, you know, reading to answer my Muslim friends led me to fall in love with study. That led me to uh, theological college. And then off the back of that, I did sort of much better than I imagined. And so one of my profs said, you know, you should think about further study. And sort of one thing led to another to another. And I sort of stumbled in to a PhD program and wow. loved it. I mean, you know, it was hard work, really hard work, but yeah. also huge fun, you know, nine really good years of my life. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, since then you've now written this book that we're kind of going to discuss, uh, now the atheist who didn't exist. Um, that's a very interesting title. Uh, how did you come up with that and what kind of led you to write this yeah. book? Well, the first thing I say about the title, I can say uh, with a with hand fully on my heart, I think it is a phenomenally 
clever and wonderful title because I didn't come up with it. <laughs> I was going to call it um, I was going to call it Why Sweden Doesn't Exist and Other Curious Problems for Atheism. And my publisher, my editor at my publisher said, um, that's far too surreal. Um, you know, uh, and people won't know what on earth you're talking about. So what about? And then he suggested it. And I remember the first time he said it, I went, oh, that's brilliant. I should have thought of that. Mm. So it was my wonderful editor at Lion Books in Oxford. Came well, out you, with that and, you, and you kind of kept a part of that, you know, why Sweden doesn't exist, because one of your chapters is called The Scandinavian Skeptic. Where that's skeptic, right. Where he's skeptical of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and maybe we'll come to the content in a minute, too, because you asked the question, answer the question why I wrote it. Basically, I think yeah, a couple of years ago, I got frustrated with the fact that the new atheism, as it's being called, the atheism popularized by people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, um, you know, this goes on and on, um, become very popular. I mean, they've sold millions of books. They're all over the Internet and the, and the media and the airwaves. I remember looking at this thinking, but their argument's terrible. I mean, not just bad, I mean, awfully bad to the extent that I can I meet many atheist friends who were embarrassed by how bad these arguments were. And Christians have written books responding to those atheists, but those books haven't had nearly the traction that they deserved. And I sort of dug into them and came to the conclusion, uh, perhaps arrogant as it sounds, um, you know, one reason is they're boring. And I think if I was an atheist, I wouldn't read a lot of Christian books responding to atheism because they're just a bit dry. Yeah. And so I began sitting down to sort of one day brainstorming about what would it look like to write a book that tried to combine comedy with apologetics yeah. um, and be a book, uh, you know, be a Christian engagement with this stuff that a non-Christian would actually want to read. That was my goal. How can I write a book that is fun enough that an atheist reads it and goes to their friends? Hey, you need to read this. This is actually quite funny. Yeah. And I think I sort of, you know, very sort of, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about that and grumbling about it and suggesting somebody should write that kind of book. And then I think one day my wife, it's usually her fault, turned to me and went, stop grumbling about it. Why don't you just write the book? No one else <laughs> is doing it. And I thought, yeah. well, maybe I should. So that I wrote what became the first chapter, showed it to a friend who went, yeah, you need to do a whole thing. So the atheist awesome. didn't exist grew out of a desire to really try and, and say, write, write, a, write a book on apologetics designed actually for non-Christians. That was the idea. Yeah, so you, your target audience really kind of was geared towards non-Christians, not necessarily training up the church to oh, go yes, out. And... Yes, I've had, some, I've had occasionally sort of Christians are sort of fed back to me going, oh, you know, there's not enough sort of theological content in this. And I've always gone, uh, well, no, because it's not aimed for Christians. There are mm. lots of really good books over Christians. That said, I just, perhaps a secondary audience for the atheists that didn't exist would be, you know, Christians who are suspicious of apologetics or afraid of it. We think it's for, you know, people with giant brains living in, you know, ivory towers. Um, you know, in, this, in your home state there, you've got, you know, someone like Biola University. It turns yeah. out, you know, brilliant, brilliant people. But I think that scares some people who sort of think, well, I'm not like that. Yeah. And so I wanted to write a book that they'd read. And so one of my friends sort of said that the atheist didn't exist. He said, you've written a gateway drug for more serious thinking. And yeah. I quite like that. I almost wanted to put that as a cover quote, but it was possibly too controversial. Because um, you'll notice each chapter in the atheist didn't exist ends with further reading. So I hope for some people they'll read each chapter. It will make them begin to think about stuff in a yeah. way that's accessible and they have a good they, and they laugh as they do it. And then they'll get to the end and go, oh, gosh, I need to go and read, you know, William Lane Craig or, or C.S. Lewis or, or Tim Keller or one of the guys who, you know, really are planet brains and, and not just playing the game like I'm a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought you did a great job with that. And that was one thing that really stood out to me is that this is a book that's written 
uh, using some comedy and, and using creative ways to express some topics. You also have the footnotes, which normally are used to give very academic things, and you share some <laughs> very interesting stories and, and, and you know just stuff in the footnotes that you wouldn't expect to see in, in most books. Um, oh, then, I was the readers, read the footnotes. You've got two books for the price of one. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, normally you skip over the footnotes in a book. Uh, you don't, you know, okay, that's all the academic stuff that I don't really look care about. And it's like, well, you start to look at the footnotes. I'm like, what are what are these? <laughs> there's some interesting, there's some good stuff in here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and then also, I mean, just, just your chapter titles, I think, alone, just, just kind of call for, wait, what is he going to be talking about? You know, with, you know, chapter one, the Loch Ness Monster's Mustache. You know, chapter two, Scandinavian Skeptic, which we talked about. Chapter three, the Aardvark and the Artichokes. Did you come up with all these chapter titles as well? Well, the back the backstory to the book is I, I think I wrote the second chapter, the eighth, the um, the Scandinavian Skeptic, and then sent it to a friend of mine who's an editor at Lion, who eventually published it. And he took a look. And he went, "Oh, this is really funny. I think this will work." And then the way I approached the book, having never written a popular level book before, so I don't know how you're supposed to do it. I went to uh, a coffee shop in, in 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 a town we were holidaying in, vacationing in at the time. And I remember I sort of went down for the went down and spent a morning in a coffee shop, uh, fueled with goodness knows how many espressos. And I just <laughs> I just tried to write what would be eleven really funny surreal titles that would make people think because the, the, those chapter titles are not they're not just an attempt to be silly and a bit fun yeah. they're, they're people wonder i wonder what that is yeah. and you'll notice anyone who reads the book on it they've each got you know more slightly more serious subtitles and the idea is each chapter starts with a kind of sort of funny story or parable that hopefully makes people laugh and and see see how silly it is yeah. so for example the scandinavian skeptic to sort of uh, you know give that one away to people for free um you know that's designed to respond to this idea that chapter responds to the idea that some atheists have advanced that you know atheism is not a belief and so you don't need to defend it i mean yeah. many atheists will say to me that we don't believe in anything it's you christians who believe in stuff so because i don't believe in anything as an atheist i don't need to defend anything and i know christians sort of run across that sort of find that very hard to respond to and then it suddenly occurred to me that's a bit like you know if you and i were having this lovely conversation and then i suddenly announced to you i don't believe in sweden and you go, well, what, what do you mean that Sweden doesn't exist? That's ridiculous. I mean, where's your evidence? And I go, ah, oh, no, Ryan, I, I see your confusion. You've mistaken yeah. my claim for a belief. I, no, I just lack a belief in Sweden. And, and I don't have to give evidence for that. You know, yeah. all of us can instantly see, now, hang on a minute. There is something obviously wrong with that conversation. Yeah. And then what you do is you transfer that over and go, now let's, let's, let's tweak that. Let's have a look at that, that, that Sweden example work out what's wrong with it, and it's easier to see in a, in a sort of silly example, and then we go, exactly, all of the things that are wrong with that apply to the idea that atheism is not a belief. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the way that the book tries to go, is to use, use sort of parables, and so there's kind of funny kind of setups to help people actually learn to think through how we respond to some of the, the more nonsense end of, of skepticism we see, we've seen of late. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a blog a few, I think a few months ago on that idea, is atheism really just a lack of belief in God? How would you respond if someone just says, well, no, like the, the definition really did change. That's what it is now. I think I'd say a number of things. I think I, I, mean, I mean, you can start more, more lightly and go a bit more deeply. If atheism is simply the lack of belief in God, then, of course, we have a number of problems there. One is that, well, there are many things that lack a belief in God. My uh, coffee mug lacks a belief in God. Rubber chickens lack a belief in God. The planet Jupiter lacks a belief in God. Does that make them atheists? I think there's something wrong with that if atheism can be applied to inanimate objects. Um, so you've got to expand the definition slightly. Yeah. Furthermore, of course, 
non-beliefs don't tend to have um, sort of identity-forming power. I mean, people don't go around self-describing as a tooth-fairians. There are not clubs of people who don't believe in the in the tooth fairy. Uh, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, but I've never I've never really sought to join a you know join a group on that basis. But yet, yeah, people do. Uh, form their identity around their atheism. Mm. They go to atheist societies. There's an atheist church now, and about several have started. Um, you know, many of the enthusiastic young skeptics who follow me on Twitter and like to poke me occasionally, um, you know, have atheism in their social identity profiles. Um, so that shows me that atheism has this sort of community-forming, identity-forming quality to it. So again, it's it's more it's something going on there. And then lastly, I think the other the other thing that's a, a, a big issue for me is, of course. Um, the way that the way that beliefs tend to have power to make you do things. So because I'm a Christian, because you're a Christian, that will that will change things. You will behave in a certain way in the light of that belief. Mm-hmm. And atheism has that quality too. I mean, the best example would be Richard Dawkins. Because of his atheism, he wrote a book about it. Yeah. So the more you look at it from different angles, it looks like atheism is a belief system. What I like to do in the book actually is go a tad further and can atheism be a now, when you wrote you really get you know angry letters coming in now, um but think, there are a number of sociologists actually that can be. i think the skype was kind of cutting out a little bit there and i'm not quite sure uh if it caught everything you just said um when it comes yeah, to the, the, the very the last thing of, of with okay. richard dawkins kind of repeat the last like 10 seconds i guess okay um, let me wind right the way back. So um, I'd say so one of the I think one of the other signs that atheism really is a belief system is it has a power to, to cause people to do things. So yeah. you and I are Christians and we will act in the light of that belief. Our Christian faith causes things. Interesting. The same thing applies to atheism. It's right. He's atheism. So lo and behold, it has a power to cause people to, to do things. So the more you look at it, Ryan, the more atheism does look like a belief system. Yeah. Furthermore, I think you could even argue it's a religion. And some sociologists would say that certain forms of atheism actually probably are best described as as religions now, the way that they function. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. So I'm talking to Dr. Andy Bannister about his uh, new book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. And and you said at the beginning of this book, uh, the, the aim of this book is to clear away the weeds of bad arguments so that a more sensible dialogue can be had. Um, and then you said that the God question is arguably the most important question that anyone can think about. You know, now I deal, you know, a lot, most spend most of my time with students who just say, you know, I my life is good. I, I don't need to think about God. I had how would you respond and why do you think that the God question yeah. is the most important question that we need to think about? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? I think the first thing I want to say is, is, you know, there are certain questions that nothing much matters on the answer. I think in the book, actually, somewhere I use the example of, you know, did, did Albert Einstein invent the cat flap? Or Isaac Newton invent the cat flap? Some historians think that he did. Some disagree. Does it make any difference? Not to my life. Not really. Nothing really hangs on. Well, apart from my cat flap, perhaps nothing much hangs on, you know, who invented the thing. But take God for a moment. Many people, including many atheists, have argued that a lot stands or falls on whether or not there is a there is a God. I think you can make a very powerful case that things like meaning and justice and beauty and truth, morality, the list goes on and on, actually don't actually work. If there isn't a God and uh, and so, for example, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist. I mean, gosh, no friend of Christians um, points this out. He says, you know, once you throw God out, everything's up for grabs because, you know, as he puts it, there is no up or down or left or right. You've scrubbed away the entire 
entire horizon because Christianity is this whole system of things thought out together and you can't just throw God away and keep uh, the morality. And a good example of that is to okay, go most university students, because like you, I spend a lot of time on campuses. You know, most university students I meet are passionately committed to social justice. Hmm. And I always like to sort of gently push back on that. Well, not push back on it, because I think I'm committed to social justice. But I like to raise the question, why does justice matter? If everything else is relative, if yeah. our beliefs you know, and our morals and our ethics and these days even our gender is all, is all fluid, then presumably justice is fluid as well. Oh, my word. No, it isn't. No, I mean, justice is justice. Try raising that one. You'll get a very quick pushback. Yeah. And then still, so, can you help me understand why? Because if we are nothing more than random collocations of atoms, then what does it matter what one collection of atoms does to another? But most of us are operating on a basis of the idea that human beings have real value and real dignity. Yeah. Uh, that it's, 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 you know, if we, if we, you know, if we bully someone on the basis of their gender or their race, if we, if we are, you know, homophobic or transphobic, if we're racist, that is inherently wrong. Why? Because human beings have dignity. But if there's no God, that idea goes out the window. So what I like to try and do is gently try and show uh, students and others that I engage with that a lot of the things that they care the most deeply about actually stand or fall on whether God exists. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that you mentioned uh, in your talk when you are here in California just two weeks ago, uh, you kind of brought those things up and, and showed how you need Christianity, you need God in order to make sense of these things. Um, but when you just mentioned going on to college campuses, talking to some people, you know, if you disagree with someone or, or, or say that they're wrong or whatever that may, may, whatever you say, you may quickly be met with something like you're being intolerant because tolerance yeah. is seen as the most important thing that we can have in our culture today is to tolerate someone. But you said something very interesting uh, two weeks ago when you were here. Uh, you mentioned that tolerance is disrespectful. Oh, yeah. Could you explain that maybe just for a couple minutes? Yeah, I like to be a little bit, little bit naughty with the word tolerance, actually, because it often gets thrown at us, you're right, as, as Christians, you're being intolerant. There's actually two things here I, I, I say. One I said in California, and another one actually only occurred to me today at a conference I was speaking at. So you'll, you'll get this fresh, off the, uh, fresh off, the, off, the, off the thinking cap. The one I said in, shared in California is tolerance is interesting, isn't it? Because when we tolerate something, what are we doing? To tolerate something usually means the thing that you're tolerating is beneath you, and you're sort of, you know, you're willing to, but you're willing to let it be because it's beneath you. Good example. I have an 18 month old. He occasionally tries to draw on the carpet or, you know, he, uh, he poos in the bath or all kinds of things that toddlers do. We tolerate that because my son Christopher is 18 months mm. old and I, and I give him a considerable amount of leeway because he's 18 months old. Once he's 18 years old, if he starts doing that, I won't be so generous because I would expect more of him. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the family dog wheeze on the couch again. We tolerate it. It's an animal. It doesn't know any better. So when we go around talking about tolerating human beings, I think we need to be careful because that suggests that we are superior to them. And we're just looking down on them and go, there, there. Of course, you believe that because you're just a, you're just an ignorant peasant. Hmm. And so, quite frankly, I don't think any of us want to be tolerated. We want to be respected. Which leads to my second point that I suddenly occurred to me today in a conversation with somebody at a conference. But here's the interesting thing. I think one thing where we can play this quite well as Christians is to ask our, you know, our, our friends who are banging us around the head with this. Great question to ask somebody is, how many people are you friends with who think differently to you? Yeah. Now, if you are a Christian who is truly engaged with the world, then you should have friends who are of different beliefs to you. Atheist friends, Muslim friends. Hopefully you've got friends who are transgender and LGBT and from some of those other communities. And to go now. I'm sorry, who's the tolerant one? I have friends and there's other communities, people who think differently to me. Hmm. Many people I meet 
who I guess would sort of, I, I don't like to use labels, but for the want of the better word, you know, play the progressive card. When you say, well, who are you friends with? Well, it turns out they're friends of people who think exactly the same as they are. So they go, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not very uh, generous, is it? Yeah. So really, if you're really going to use the tolerant label, if we're going to use that word, then at least ask yourself, how many people are you invested in their lives? And they are deeply, deeply different to you. Because to me, that just looks like similarity. The church, when it works well, it doesn't always, but when it works well, I mean, that great picture at the end of Revelation, people of every tribe and every tongue, and of course, people who are in different stages of dealing with all kinds of issues. And one of the things I love about Jesus, you read the Gospels, he attracted to him people who were vastly different to himself. He hung out with, you know, sinners and tax collectors and the, and the people no one else would touch. Uh, and, of course, had no time really for, for, for the narrow mind conformity of the Pharisees. Yeah. Um, Phariseeism today, I think, is often found among the, you know, those who would use the progressive word. That's modern day Phariseeism. Interesting. Wow. Well, I know you got to get going here in about three minutes, so maybe I can finish up with two quick questions for you. Far away, we can always uh, overrun slightly, but do two last questions and we'll do our best. Okay. Um, what would you say, you know, since I work a lot with students, how would you recommend for students to train and prepare so that they aren't deceived by these bad arguments? And kind of That's how, do, do evangelism. Yeah. The first answer is obviously there's a wonderful red book called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist <laughs> by that British guy, Andy Manister. So uh, definitely worth buying uh, a copy of that. Um, no, I, I'd say two things, I think, I think seriously. I think the first uh, thing is, as Christians, we need to really be thinking through our faith. 1 Peter 3.15, and it says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Or you have Jesus who said, love the Lord your God with your, with your soul and your heart and your mind. And often I think we neglect this one. Slightly. So I think there's nothing beats actually digging into our faith, you know, understanding why you believe the things that you do. And a great way to do that is actually to hang out as much as you can with non-Christians. You know, don't, you know, as Christians, don't stop meeting together, for goodness sake. But, you know, perhaps as well as go to the Christian campus group, why not go to the Secular Alliance with a couple of friends, moral support, and just make friends with, you know, folks in that's the atheist community. And you'll learn the arguments because they'll throw them at you. And if you don't know the answer, you just look at your atheist friend and go, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. If you're really interested, if you're really interested, I'll find the answer for you. And we'll get for coffee in a couple of weeks time. But if you're just playing games, then just tell me because we might as well not waste any of our time. Yeah. And just like I did with Muslims, let your skeptical friends, you know, drive, uh, you know, drive your questioning because then you're you're working on answering a person, not answering an argument. But do it as in community. As, as well. Don't do that on your own. Go with, go with two or three Christian friends. Then you can support one another, encourage one another, work on this stuff uh, together. Be, be amazed as you do that, the stuff that you learn and how more confident you become in your faith. And also you may see the privilege of God breaking through into the lives of the wow. people that you're talking with. Yeah. And so kind of relating to that, this last kind of point, I think you made it in, in here when you're here in California, but you said if we don't share well, then we will inoculate the culture against Christianity. You know, uh, and just this idea yeah, of... Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was uh, the Skype lagged. Yeah, okay. I was drawing there from uh, from C.S. Lewis. So Lewis has this uh, illustration that he draws from from medicine where he talks about um, inoculation. The way that inoculation works is you expose the patient to a weak, watered down version of the of the disease. They build up immunity to it. And then when they encounter the real disease, they won't they won't get infected. And Lewis then raises this really challenging question. He asks, could it be possible that we have inoculated the culture 
against Christianity because we've exposed people to a weak, watered-down version mm. of the real thing, and they've rejected it. And one of the things that fascinates me, and, and maybe the same goes for you, Ryan, is I've met, I meet so many people who, when you push into their stories, will tell you they tried church, they, you know, perhaps they gave it a go, or they, or they knew Christians, and what they saw in the church or the, their Christian friends wasn't good. And it's a sobering wake-up call. We don't want to beat ourselves up, but also at the same time be realistic that I think one of the number one reasons people reject the gospel or don't consider it is they've taken a look at Christians in the church and gone, I don't want anything to do with that. Hmm. And one of the things, there are a number of ways, there are two ways in particular that I think we need to work, where we really do this and need to be very careful. Um, one is around politics. You know, obviously at the time we're recording this, we're approaching, you know, a very significant time in, in, a, in the American political cycle. Um, Christians need to watch how they handle the political discussion. Um, sometimes we can give the impression that being a Christian means voting a certain way. And then, of course, what you're saying is anyone who doesn't vote that way, well, God, Jesus isn't for you. That is an utter disaster. And as someone who loves politics, um, one of the things I've had to learn is to go, the biggest danger for those of us who love politics and are passionate about it is collapsing our faith into our politics. Don't, don't do that. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, you know, with the amazing work he's done in New York, at, you know, Redeemer Presbyterian. You know, he would say, you know, one of their principles there in New York very early on was, was don't talk about politics. You know, just lead, just push it to one side because it just it's very difficult to do it well. And without it, just distracting from the gospel. So their principle was don't do it. Let other people do it. And so I would say to people, if you want to be an evangelist and engage your community, engage your friends, be willing to put your politics to one side. You may have to hold you may you may at times be very frustrated. You may want to step into an argument and go, yes, but let the yes, but go. Because what would you rather do, win the argument on abortion or uh, win someone for Christ? I know which I'd prefer. Yeah. And then secondly, finally, I think I talked last week or the other week in California, without meaning to it related to the first, we've sometimes given, sometimes given the impression to people that the gospel is all about moralism. You know, the God, being a Christian means living the right way, having a nice, clean you know, lifestyle and, and, and doing all the right things. And of course, if that's the impression people get of Christianity, that isn't the gospel. That's moralism. And it stinks. It, stink. it stunk in the first century. Jesus has a go at the Pharisees for it. We can drift into it very easily. The gospel is, in fact, the complete reverse of it. The gospel says you come to Jesus completely messed up and morally broken and everything else. And you come to the cross and you fall to your knees and you go, Lord, I'm a complete and total wreck. And, uh, and Jesus picks you up and, uh, and forgives you and restores you and redeems you. And uh, that work of new creation begins. Um, and then that will, of course, that will transform your behavior with the Lordship of Christ. And it ends with moral transformation. Sometimes in the church, we've tried to reverse it. You can get your lives and you'll be good enough. That's a disaster. Yeah. And I think if we get if we nail those two, mixing up faith and politics and confusing moralism for the gospel, I think we amaze how many people are deeply drawn to Jesus. He's incredibly attractive, as we'd expect. And I think if we preach him and get some of the baggage out of the way, and apologetics is really about clearing the baggage out of the way, yeah. uh, then incredible things happen. That is a great way to finish this up, pointing back to Jesus and the real reason why we do apologetics. So, Andy, thank you so much for joining me. For those of you listening, make sure you check out his book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. Um, is there another place where they can go and get more uh, information, resources, a website or something that you have? Yeah, where I'd send people, because um, uh, it's got links to my book, there's other writings there, and a link to Solas and RZAM, who I work for, you can go to andybannister.net, uh, andybannister, one word, dot net, and they can, uh, they can find a lot more about what I do, where I'm doing it, and uh, all kinds of resources there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining me today. It's been a pro uh, pleasure. Ryan, thank you so much. All righty. 